You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. Hello, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. I am your host, Annie Anderson, as always, and I teach English at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. Uh, And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I have a feeling it's going to be the first of a series, so uh, this might be tagged with a part one. Uh, So just a little bit of background before we get started. If you go to grad school in the humanities or social sciences, you'll probably encounter Raymond Williams's really great book uh, called Keywords, A Vocabulary of Culture and Society. And in that book, Raymond Williams basically offers a list of buzzwords and key terms like culture is a big one for him um, of the day and does these awesome little riffs about them and their cultural weight, rhetorical strategy, historical significance, and the way they've changed over time. Uh, And in short, William shows how the words we use reveal something about our political lives and social values. And well, we certainly have some words today, don't we? Uh, And they're no less significant in understanding who and what we are. So I'm going to call this one Uh, keywords, a vocabulary of barbarism and stupidity. Uh, And who better to join me for this one than our old friend and master of language and culture, C. Derek Varn. Derek, how you doing, man? I'm okay. I'm okay. (laughs) Yeah, um, I've been fascinated by this topic for a long time. I've done episodes of Systematic Redness um, back in the day before it was associated with zero books on a lot of these terms and their history. And trust me, I did a four and a half hour recording that I never released on what cultural Marxism's history actually was. Um, I released parts of it, but the whole thing got never saw air. Cause at one point I was reading like long tracks of racist propaganda from the thirties and talking about specific usage. So I'll try to save your listeners for that. I I am going to be pointing out though, um, that a lot of these, the origins for some of these get really convoluted and, Partly because we have a discourse now that's a weird patois or a creole of um, of high theory and internet slang, mm. which has always kind of been the case, but it gets a lot of these terms trace themselves to a crisis in both liberalism and in leftism, and I mean those separately here. Yeah, and in the 1970s, but they don't really catch on outside of either activist circles or academia. Until Twitter, yeah, I, our Tumblr. So this might be a similar parallel, but different topic. Then um, I've noticed a lot with especially young academics, and I kind of put this down to some sort of self-loathing um, in that we know that we sound like idiots when we talk like we talk in grad school. And so when you hear people who are young academics talking in public, they like to swear a lot in the midst of talking about Bourdieu and and all their high theory. They'll throw in swear words like see i'm really a street level guy right i'm, I'm not really one of these ivory tower guys and, and i feel like yeah that that mixing between uh, uh internet slang and high theory is sort of a parallel structure there too it's like trying to not own your inauthenticity or something i don't know um yeah so we have a, a whole list of words i want to get to them real quickly though but i want to also um I, 
I hopefully this will incite some response in the listener. Uh, so please do contact the show. We have a Facebook page that I'd love for you to go hit like on and participate in the conversations that we have there. I have a Twitter account that I'm learning how to use. Uh, of course, iTunes reviews are always good. And I had forgotten that months ago over on the uh, sectarian, if you go to www.sectarianreviewpodcast.com, there's a little button that says leave voicemail. I'd forgotten that months ago I put that up there because nobody ever used it. And, uh, and this week, actually, somebody used it. And so I want to actually play a listener voicemail just to show you that that's a possibility, too. Danny, this is Chris. I really enjoy your show. Um, it's definitely one of my favorite podcasts. I was wondering if you'd seen the Netflix documentary Wild Wild Country. It's a documentary series about a hippie cult from India preaching free love and capitalism that took over a small Oregon town in the early 80s. It seems to intersect with a lot of the show's interests, and I think you'd probably really enjoy it. Um, it definitely asks interesting questions about the role of religious sects in our society. Anyway, thanks for doing what you do. Keep up the good work. Uh, and thanks for leaving the voicemail, Chris. That, that was uh, that was great. And I was I sort of vaguely was aware of that, but I had not looked into it. And I think I am going to watch that series here in the next couple of weeks and um, plan an episode on that. So if you have any feedback for a previous show or ideas for a, a upcoming show, do what Chris did. Go to the website, uh, click that leave voicemail. You don't have to worry about typing anything. It's great. Uh, and I get these things emailed right to me. So um, let's get started, though, Derek. Um, so we have quite a list, and like I said. This might be a part one of of X. Who knows how many episodes this will go. Um, Jay Eldred, uh, friend of the show, longtime friend of the show, um, suggested this, and we were going to tackle it anyway. But And I think it sets the stage for what we're going to be talking about. And I think it kind of provides a template for a lot of the other terms in many ways. But the term is woke. Uh, so woke is something you hear a lot and both in positive and pejorative ways. And so let's talk a little bit about the term woke. Okay, so woke is a complicated term. And what's funny about it is I had heard that used before in the 1980s, right? Because I am from a mostly black area of the country. Um, and it, mean, it meant like – I literally – actually, the, how I had it – this is funny – um, is I got woke to Jesus. <laughs> That's very interesting. Okay. Because um, you know my theory was, about liberalism and, and fundamental Christianity being kind of the same thing. Um, so, okay. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, so I got woke to Jesus. Um, and um, I had I had kind of known that term from growing up in, in Macon, Georgia, which is a majority, is a majority black town. It's political usage – comes from a couple of places and what's funny is that it's a term associated with the black community and the left that goes back actually a very long time but it has been dropped um for most of its history so let me I'll, I'll, the oed says that it was first used in politics by uh, william marvin kelly in the new york times um and the article was, if you're woke, you dig it. Now, <laughs> you know, that's very much in beat and and uh, black slime vernacular, mixture of both. Sure. Um, Kelly was an African-American novelist and short story writer. Um, kind of the second wave of, we, we would consider him Harlem, but he actually wasn't. He was Bronx. Um, 
but he was big into uh, the second generation of the Harlem arts movement. Okay. Um, he was related to the New School for Social, for Social Research and Sarah Lawrence. He was a black activist, but he wasn't really a Garveyist. It's hard to... He wasn't one of the black Marxists either. He wasn't like a member of the Panthers. Okay. Um, he was just trying to speak in the vernacular of the day and kind of capture it. Now... What I found interesting, though, is there's actually an earlier usage, still by a, still by an African American man, um, related to labor. Oh, interesting. And it's okay. from 1940. So this is this is actually um, research that disagrees with the OED because the OED is didn't have these sources apparently. But Jay Sanders Redding, who was a United Mine Workers activist and a black man and a black, uh, general black work uh, black workers organizer in the 1940s. Um, made a comment that was officially recorded on record as let me tell you buddy waking up is a damn sight harder than going to sleep but we'll stay woke up longer Mm -hmm. is the first recorded reference anyone can find of it in a political context so it's in a labor context and it's in a black vernacular because it's a black labor activist okay now woke however really gets Picked up by Barry Beckham um, in the 1971 play called Garvey Lives. And it's not associated with Marxism or even like left labor organizations. You know, um, it's associated with Garveyism after that play. So Garveyism is uh, a form of black nationalism that doesn't go as far as like say the Nation of Islam. Um, and like saying that all black people are evil, but does like it's pan-African and all this. One of the reasons why I thought I left Menacre then is the Black Panthers, because they didn't believe um, in the majority. There were a few uh, Black Panther Jason people like Stokely Carmichael who did, but who, who did not, who kind of rejected black nationalism as a means of re- liberation. People actually don't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't use it because of its, in the 70s because of its association with Garveyism, because of that play. All right, it falls off the radar in 1971 and after the mid-70s, except in, like, common street vernacular. So it doesn't signify anything. It's just, you know, part of African-American vernacular. It means, you know, it's it's what in the – we would not unhipply say now um, and probably slightly racistly, but back in the day, um, in the 80s and 90s, we would have called it bonics. Okay. Yeah. So it was part of that, but it had lost its any political connotation for a long time. So how does it get back? Well, in come Erica Badu. Okay. Badu in um, New America Part One in two thousand and eight uses the phrase "I stay woke." Uh, um, in her. <clears throat> in her song master teacher okay um that's 2008 but it doesn't really have a political context it's just black vernacular in 2012 on twitter and black twitter which we need to talk about black twitter a little bit so one of the interesting things about twitter and one of the things that makes twitter kind of unique among social media is twitter was adopted by the african-american community um over facebook for whatever reason. It's kind of a historical accident. But it was. And so you hear a lot about black Twitter. Now, 
admittedly, black Twitter is a very small part of Twitter and a very small part of the black community. It's actually a fairly elite part. Um, it's mostly activists and recently educated people. And so in 2002, um, Badu, when talking about Pussy Riot, she wasn't talking about black issues, interestingly. Mm-hmm. When talking about Pussy Riot, uh, what, what happened to them, she tweets um, in support of the group, truth requires no belief, stay woke and watch closely, hashtag free Pussy Riot. Mm-hmm. Now, that gets picked up in 2014 by um, black Twitter's relationship to Black Lives Matter. And... Somewhere around 2014, 2015, it replaces social justice warrior um, as the word for an activist trying to be uh, interested in intersectional issues. Sure. The reason why is social justice warrior, which originally was not a pejorative, became a pejorative. Yeah. Um, And... um, so they started using it in a very interesting way. Now, immediately, um, it was picked up um, by a lot of right-left liberals. Um, and for those of you who aren't used to the way I speak, left liberals is just to distinguish people from left anarchists and left Marxists and all the other forms of leftism out there because um, we aren't the same thing. A lot of these words do have a relationship to those. This word kind of does, but not really. Yeah. And so it's picked up as a way of showing that you were becoming woke to your privilege, becoming woke to structural situation in society. Yeah. Um, and. And you can already see uh, where this word is connected to a lot of the other words that we're going to be talking about privilege and intersectionality. Right. And so, yeah, keep going. So Amanda has pointed out, like very early on in 2016 and i mean i say very early on because this word being mass used is new it's it it, it spread incredibly quickly um and it happened over four years Mm. that's rare yeah all right when we talk about a lot of these terms they have much longer histories um so the issue is that it's definitely appropriative now Personally, when we talk about cultural appropriation later, I'm going to tell you, I don't care. (laughs) Um, uh, I don't like cultural appropriation the way it's used in left circles now anyway, and we'll get into that. But um, it was immediately sort of of an issue, and it also has already taken, and very quickly taken on, even within left-wing circles, a kind of ironic or... Um, d- dismissive uh, connotation for the same reasons that social justice world did, but actually this one I think mostly came out of out of the far left reaction to it is mm-hmm. like, oh, you're woke now, yeah. like you're yeah. just realizing some basic stuff, and you're trying to yeah. and you're inserting yourself in the conversations you really don't understand. Yeah, well, and you know that there there does come a point where all of these terms get turned into negatives for people who don't like them. So woke Twitter is a thing, right? And it often refers to this sort of surface level 
you know, online activist who doesn't actually do anything, but um, another term that sometimes I've actually gotten unfollowed by using the term virtue signaling. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, that that's another term I guess we could put on the list. But um, the uh, not but, today. But no. <laughs> I actually think virtue signaling is both a real issue and also not as bad as conservatives make it out to be. Yeah. Like it's both like a real thing and you know. But when people unfollow you, I'm going to say this for because I. I'm going to go ahead and warn people. I'm probably just by stating facts going to upset <laughs> all sides of a lot of these debates. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. My- and uh, that's not going to change. So wh- when Stay Woke w- reached ubiquity and also became – within two years, it reaches ubiquity and also becomes kind of a joke. Yeah. Is um, It's picked up in a documentary by Jessica Williams on the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and she entitles the movement Stay Work, the Black Lives Matter movement, which, because it's a hip new phrase, and she attaches it to it, comes on BET. Um, and, you know, it, it, it traces things back from Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman to, to Michael, to the Michael Brown incident and, and Ferguson and et cetera and so forth, and kind of stops there. Now, I have my own controversial opinions of the Black Lives Matter movement because I have stated that its its movement after 2016 is very different than what it was before because it's more of a college-based thing Yeah. after 2016, and it's kind of related to um, a bunch of newly educated, kind of actually extremely elite and fairly well-off um, African-American people. Also, um, the use by people like Sean king yeah whose you know ethnicity is like debated even amongst left circles um as whether he's mixed race or faking it or what um and i'm not going to get into that but the um the the issue quickly becomes one of uh the movement from what is an an organic anti-police protest that's very much rooted in like working class people mm-hmm. um, and, and working class people of color and people who are, you know, clearly victimized by police. And and a lot of conservatives he's doing on this like, oh, that, you know, in Baltimore, those cops were black. They weren't when they were talking about racism, they were talking about like these relatively underprivileged people with do do not speak the social capital of of left activism they understood structural racism kind of intuitively yeah and ran with it and the movement seemed to change when it entered college campuses Mm. and that makes sense because it's a different group of people a profoundly different group of people um doing this discussion and one of the interesting things this came out in a sociology papers by some african-american sociologists in 2016 um, is that upper middle class um, African Americans and see racism as a bigger threat to their lives and other now all African Americans see racism as a major problem in their lives, but it's actually upper middle class people uh, see racism as a bigger threat in their lives and other forms of of systemic issues. And the reason why, um, according to this paper, it was postulated. That it really is more of a, a a detriment on their lives. They they have their financial needs met, so their inability to climb up the social ladder is purely based on racial bias. Mm. Um, and racial bias actually is more um, pernicious and stronger in higher educated suburban people, 
even liberal ones, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, than it is in the working class. Even the working class people will say horrendously racist, probably plenty racist people. But the reason why it's a lot, it, 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 there's a lot different, is that working class neighborhoods, particularly in the South, tend to be quote unquote transitional, which is code word for mixed race. Mm. Interesting. Um, I mean, and for example, I think about my own life. Um, you know, when I was growing up in Macon in the 2000s and 90s, when I go to work, I would work with mostly black people. When I would go home, there was like two black people in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were probably more well off than me, yeah. to be honest, both statistically and also from my own experience of them. Um, so... It was this, and by that I don't mean that like black people were more were often poor whitey. I mean that like the specific people in my neighborhood were actually, sure, um, uh, probably richer than most of the white people in the neighborhood because they had to be to be let in, right? And not just be chased off. Um, my experience living in our little town in the in Georgia um, was very similar. Um, the folks who are African American like literally lived on the other side of the tracks in that town. There was a railroad track that went through and literally that's where they're all, all their houses were. So it, yeah, it was, we lived, yeah, same. It was actually the same exact thing. And then in the cities, when we grew up, you would, you would talk about the bad sides of town and what the bad sides of town were, they were mixed race neighborhoods. Yeah. And the really bad sides of town, the, the, where were like unemployed black neighborhoods, but the quote unquote bad side, which was newly bad was mixed race. Yeah. And so, um, you know, there's a real, I think there's a real, you know, sociological materialist reason for the way that happens. Um, and I just bring that up because that change of who speaks for the Black Lives Matter movement has changed the way it's perceived. And it's actually made it a lot easier to attack. It's a lot harder to attack people fighting cops in Ferguson, even, you know, for what they're doing even if you find something, if you believe those conservative stories about uh, Michael Brown, then it is to attack college activists on fairly elite liberal arts colleges. Yeah, you, it goes back to the the whole ivory tower sort of cloistered snowflake um, narrative, right? And so it is easier to dismiss people who obviously do display some privilege of their own, right? Um, but yeah, but I bring that up because it's an interesting thing to talk about to me because I like to point out that the Black Lives Matter did not there. It is not, it's not even like the Rainbow Coalition in the 80s. Mm-hmm. It really did come out of a real response to police violence by normal people. And then yes, left activists got involved and then yes, um, academics got involved immediately. Yeah. All right. But it wasn't the origin of the movement. Um, and when I, I hesitate to call it a movement, I'm one of those people who thinks a lot of these hashtag movements are not actually movements, um, because they're mostly about media narrative and that they're a response to media narrative and also part of it, but it's very hard to see how they affect the lives of a lot of everyday people. Yeah. Um, and I'll avoid saying anything specific about that unless it comes up. So I, I say all that as a as a prefix to saying woke is interesting because it's obviously come up really fast, but it has actually a pretty long and interesting history that is tangentially relevant 
But no one knew it. I mean, let's be honest. When Erica Badu picked it up in 2008, she wasn't picking up knowing that it had this history related to Garveyism and knowing that, yeah, like people spoke that way in labor labor movements in the 1940s. She picked it up because it's part of the vernacular of the way people talk in Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, you know, in the black in Philadelphia being the you know one of the blackest cities in in uh, Pennsylvania, and so and and so its reemergence is just kind of somewhat coincidental that it actually did also have a prior meaning that was similarly politicized. Yeah, and it emerges into the popular vernacular through what you say, black Twitter, right? And then yeah, through black Twitter, then through black lives matter, then through mass media. Yeah. And yeah. that, in that order. And then it becomes a cliche that other people can adopt, right? Uh, just yeah. as, as and what you'll, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. But what's interesting about this one is other than that pickup with the Garvius play in 1971, it doesn't, it's one of the few terms we're going to talk about that doesn't actual theory are some kind of legal origin. Yeah. It's not coming from that. It's from just plain old um, African American vernacular and the way it's been incorporated in the pop culture. Yeah. And yeah, because of that, it's had a political history several times, but they're kind of separate inst- instantiations of the same word being used that way. Yeah. I can't find the first recorded, like, normal, non politicized uh, use of woke in, like, in this manner, I mean, obviously we could find woke going because it's an old English word. We could find it going all the way back, but in using this way, because we don't record that because it was probably in the early 20th century or late 19th century amongst the black community and nobody was writing it down. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, nah, I'll bleep it. It's okay. Oh, write that down. What I just did what it? you uh, yeah. were talking about is academic swearing a lot. Um, yeah. Not you though. Not yet. Yeah. <laughs> It looks good <laughs> on you, though, right? <laughs> so, um, so uh, well, I'm not a graduate student. I'm I'm like a decade <laughs> and a half out from that, man. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. Um, so, um, one you know, one thing that stands in mind though, it, it does become a source of kind of signifying one's own kind of virtue, if you don't want to call that virtue signaling. <laughs> you, you do show that you're sort of on the right side of history, whatever that means, um, for for the folks who use it in that way. But it also becomes, uh, you know what you know what I have a problem with not so much virtue signaling, even though I, I don't I call it that, but I also don't think I think virtue signaling is actually like everybody does it. When, when conservatives can play about this, there be it's kind of a bad faith argument because they're all it they just do it with other dog whistles yes that's exactly well and also just by pointing out and using the term virtue signaling it's basically performing in the same exact way it's it's a kind of virtue signaling to point out other people's virtue signaling uh and so i i totally i totally get all that right uh one memory before we move on to the next term um that i have where this becomes a real pejorative and i can't remember who it was connor kilpatrick or somebody on twitter um someone had tweeted out after we're in the run-up to the 2016 election a picture of a t-shirt that said hillary 2016 um michelle obama in the next eight years, um, Chelsea Clinton, the eight years after that, Obama daughter, number one, eight years after that, and the other Obama daughter, eight years after that. Yeah, I saw that. And, uh, and he, he tweeted, um, make monarchy woke again. <laughs> right? And so I thought that that was actually a really clever um, subversion of the term. I think it was Conor Kilpatrick, somebody like that, if it wasn't. Yeah, uh, and that was, was a long time ago. Probably Kilpatrick. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll leave our sectarian issues alone here if you want to yeah. talk about the sectarian review. But... <laughs> Um, I actually had the same, I, I remember like just getting on, um, getting on Facebook and, uh, 
just talking about the the ultimate myopia of the liberal man- imagination is all they can imagine is family dynasties. I was like, <laughs> come on, like you guys are gonna make me miss the good old days of of democratic machine politics with this crap <laughs> um but uh... but anyway yeah make monarchy woke that's great uh, it, it actually can now be said to be even more literalized right because uh uh you know everybody's all talking about the racial progressiveness of a guy who used to wear nazi uniforms to <laughs> to parties and um is tied to what used to be the largest imperial power in the planet yeah <laughs> exactly don't yeah. you love it how, the ironies of history how far we've come <laughs> right and so um That's, right <laughs> yeah and we don't have to talk about these since we haven't prepared but i just want to give a thanks to folks who are submitting uh words as we're having this conversation um drew vantland longtime friend of the show thinks that the term normative is overused um and he has some really interesting uh he had a really interesting take on that his uh his claim is people who use normative to mean descriptively normal which totally inverts its meaning which is prescriptive right so he has a really good point about the uh the use of normative there and that's a very academic uh uh term i don't think you see that necessarily in uh in any kind of uh, popular political twitter but uh, but he's totally right you do see that term a lot uh and jeffrey carter another friend of the show um referring to the ideas of your opponents as syndromes um, or diseases of the mind is especially wicked and stupid if for no other reason that it conflates mental illness and the mentally ill with political wrangling and debate and demonizes and dehuman and dehumanizes and so i think he's right about oh, that's, that that's particularly astute also it's cowardly yeah but yeah. i mean like um uh i, I want to go back to the days that when we fight we fight honestly yeah like you know <laughs> And and when I beat you, I beat you fair and square and drive you into the ground. No, um. <laughs> hear the lamentation of the women. Right? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so. oh, oh, the number of times I make Conan references on my Facebook. <laughs> but um, what's our next word, man? I don't know. Where do you want to go? Uh, do you want to talk about gaslighting? That's kind of a, a particular okay, one of mine. So. so that's a let's talk about gaslighting, and then then let's pick a white ring word so I don't just always feel like I'm yeah. Yeah, this. Um, yeah, although I will say most of the words we wrote down are typically associated with liberalism, right? And so, but yeah, I think the the right does have its own version. We have several pointed out here, so let's go with gaslighting right. sort of stuff. So I think the I think the etymology of gaslighting is more commonly known. Actually, it comes from a 1938 uh, Patrick Hamilton play called Gaslight, which is made into a film twice in the 40s. I don't know why it was made twice in the 40s. <laughs> one in 1940, one in 1944. Um, the term was picked up. In uh, clinical research literature in the 1990s. Okay, so it's it's a way of abuse where you say that um, a person's own perception, memory, and sanity is distorted by just saying stuff didn't happen when you know it did. Mm-hmm. Now, um. The in the 1980s in particular, it was apparently used um, to talk about the way. And this is a particularly dark subject, actually. It's used primarily to talk about child sexual abuse. Yeah, its broader term in feminist literature comes, like I said, in the 90s. Um, now 
it was a tactic that was described as used by sociopaths and narcissists hashtag uh, asterisk two psychological categories which are barely recognized as legitimate psychological categories by um, I think narcissism is actually in the DSM, but I don't think psychopathy is anymore. Okay. Um, I, I I'm not a psychologist. I don't know, but my mother used to, my, uh, was a psych nurse for a point in her life, so I actually keep up with this stuff. And so what it's what it's what it's doing is um, making someone cast doubt and breaking down their self esteem. Um, so. In the film, uh, Ingrid, uh, Ingrid Bergman, she's in the 1944 film, and I'm going to mention that one because it's a better movie, um, the the husband basically tries to convince Rife that um, she's insane by messing with the lights and denying that it's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Abuse uh, pattern. In the 90s... Um, this gets actually kind of formalized. And so they formalize it into a, I believe it in, uh, in 1988. And they talk, um, so this is actually pre nineties. They talk about it, not just in terms of child sexual abuse, um, but as a cause of depression and avoidant personality disorder. Okay. Um, as, as a contributory side factor and they talk about it in terms of marriages and family therapy and i believe the people who who lay down the version of what i'm talking about is gas and nichols in 1988 in a paper called gaslighting a marital syndrome that was released in the journal of contemporary family therapy now one of the things that you're going to hear and i have a strong critique of this one of the things a lot of these terms come out of there is this movement in the 2000s in the late 90s to use psychological terminology and with the idea that the person was political out of the 70s to refer to them as politicized things okay all right so these personal things are political things according to um so you have a lot of these psychological and a lot of these are gendered and race-based even in the psychological literature but they weren't used politically um I call this the therapeutic thing in, in, in politics. I actually think it's highly corrosive. So I'm just telling you that now so that your listeners know that I do have a bias. And I think some of this is unhelpful. Okay. Um, but here's how they define gaslighting. We're holding information from a victim, countering information to fit the abuser's perspective, discounting counter information, verbal abuse, usually in the forms of jokes or other passive aggressivity. Um, blocking, diverting the victim's attention from any outside sources that would correct it, trivializing the victim's worth, and undermining the victim by gradually weakening their uh, them and their thought processes. Okay. Um, furthermore, Jay Carter, who really goes into more of this in more detail, um, talks about the fact that he only thinks that um, about in like one um, percent of the time is it intentional, and about twenty percent of the time it's actually a defensive mechanism by the person doing it, and it's a kind of unintentional defensive abuse. Okay, now all that sounds very clear. It has a pretty clear method. Um, Jay uh, Jay Carter goes on in another paper. I can't remember the exact paper, um, and defines it uh, as three more conditions that there are three ways of commonly gaslighting, which is hiding information. Um, 
changing, trying to change the victim by changing their informational input and controlling information. Okay. Now, here's where the shift gets tricky. And it's related to something that will come up again and again, but I'm not going to talk about today. And it's probably going to come up in one of our later series that's called Standpoint Epistemology. Okay. What do you count as information? Is qualia information? And then, according to some versions of Standpoint Epistemology and not others, is your qualia actually affecting all other forms of your information in so much that any disagreement about information is standpoint impossible to breach? Okay. So now you have this legitimate so – I, I do think it's a legitimate abuser tactic that is actually kind of accidental. It's not conscious. Um, that occurs in relationship dynamics, usually between men and women, are, are, are parents and children. Not It's not totally gendered male-female. It's also gendered uh, – gendered well, are aged. Okay? Okay. Um, so what happens here is when you – when you took the personal and political context from uh, 70s feminism, you take this notion of standpoint epistemology from 70s feminist Marxism, and that's a crazy history, but I'm not getting into it today. <laughs> um, I've written a lot about it. I'd be happy to talk about it in another episode. Um, and then you take this notion. Um, a lot of feminists point out that this was a tactic used um, – by men to deny a lot of basic things that were happening to women in the social cultural context. So they take this concept in interpersonal relationship dynamics, and I think initially accurately apply it to the way it's used socially. Okay. Here's the problem, though. If you are accepting qualia as a form of knowledge, you can read this, and by qualia I mean subjective experiences. You can read any disagreement about experience – as an attempt to change the view, the 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 viewer's perspective, and that includes education, by the way. Right. Okay. And you can expand this concept out. Um. From its relatively limited use in psychiatry in the eighties and nineties to a slightly but legitimately expo- uh, expansion of that to a social dynamic in the early aughts to anything that disagrees with you. Okay. Because disagreement and arguing is an attempt to change perspective. Therefore, you are gaslighting. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Now it's making now, sense. That was a long setup, but it makes sense now. Okay. <laughs> now, that doesn't become popular until – that uh, Maureen Dowd actually uses that term in a political context in the New York Times, I believe, about the – actually about critiquing the Clinton administration. Oh, Interesting. But it doesn't get used a lot um, until the the late aughts. And what I think happened, and you see this a lot. So one of the things that we don't talk about when we talk about education is the expansion of of education and liberal arts degrees into. I mean, I'm a product of that into working class jobs because. Um, one of the things that's missed is that jobs that in the before the late '90s did not require any form of degree and still technically don't, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Okay. But now have informal degree requirements. You do you cannot get that job without a degree, even though it's not a job that needs it. So degrees were amassed, and a lot of these terms that were relatively limited to either psychology or critical theory became commonly used. And blogging. 
Yeah. <laughs> and so we started talking about academic you know, blogging too. Gaslighting, and I believe the first Bill Clinton, and then it gets picked up again um, with people talking about the Bushes, who are doing it. I mean, you know, it's literally like you, you know, it's it's a it's it's a it's, it meets all the standards, right, with the Iraq War. You know, Except, discounting I, counter information, withholding pre information from the victim. But um, but are we talking about jokes? I mean, is, so in a relationship, I can see how you've got a, a certain power over somebody, right? And and even in certain social groups, like a church, for example, I can see how this can apply well, in social you groups like that. If you think about like the that. presidency compared to the constituency of the imagination, it would still apply. Okay, I guess, but it's not like. But you can already see the danger in expanding the concept out, right? Right, exactly. So if Trump lies to me, okay, it's not necessarily – it's not an assertion of any kind of power over me necessarily because I could still – I could still not – He's got more media access than you. It, well, okay, you can, but I can still not vote for him and he'll never even know it, right? I don't have to live with him day to day, right? And, and so um, that's sort of my choice and I feel like that's where it gets sort of – extended beyond its ability to not break well here's the thing i'm not actually defending it in that use but i will say it's not it's not hard to see in the in the examples of presidencies and stuff like that how it wouldn't apply what or how it would apply or wouldn't apply like i see both limitations one the relationship is one-sided in the case of the president the power dynamic is not known but when you look at the criterion laid out Withholding abuse for different ca- counting information to fit the viewer's perspective, discounting information, verbal abuse in forms of jokes or taunts, blocking and diverting outside attention, trivializing the victim's self-worth, and undermining the victim gradually by weakening them in their thought processes. That can all be used in media manipulation in a coherent way in those steps. Okay. The thing is, the the underlying relationship dynamic would be fundamentally different because the relationship's one-sided anyway. Yeah, you're not trapped in the house with this person, right? And that's kind of right. the, the original term is, you know, he's she's under his power, right? And and she, yeah, and so I feel like so you see yeah. the expansion of the psychological metaphor into politics about first actually it is first about Bill Clinton, and it's interesting there, and it is specifically sexual use yeah. about the way Bill Clinton was treating some of his um, uh, sexual assault and sexual harassment accusers. Now, that I, that I can go with, though, because it's on a personal le- level where their job is actually dependent on his goodwill, right? And so yeah. um, that but I then, can But then Dowd actually uses it to describe what Bill Clinton was also doing to Newt Gingrich, even though Dowd is not a Republican. Yeah. So I don't think. Is she, I don't think so. So so – she she already she even in that instance expands Clinton's use of it from the from the assault victims to the way Clinton treated the the um, GOP in the 90s. Mm. And then it gets expanded again when we're talking about the Bushes and the and the WMD. It's also used in this term this entire time in feminist literature because it is a very real gendered issue. Um, it's not that women never do it. But it's it's initial instantiation and family dynamics was mostly male to female amongst a very, but it was amongst a very specific subset of men with psychological problems. Yeah. Um, and seen as a defensive mechanism for those psychological problems. Um, that all that prior context has been lost. Yeah. And yeah. now we now I see it used. I mean, it's used as a very easy way to say, 
you know, you are, you know, you're discounting my opinion by disagreeing with me. Right. Um, I mean, I had it thrown at me one day when I was literally arguing with someone about the meaning of an assertion. They were just like, this is wrong. I'm like, that's not an argument. And they were like, yes, it is. I'm like, no, an argument by axiomatic, like by its axiomatic definition contains both a, um, a, a premise and a justification. Right. <laughs> and they were like, uh-uh, you're <laughs> gaslighting me. And I was like, what in the world? And they bought me. And, um, <laughs> cause I was like, uh, no, that's just a factual statement. Um, you can see in the expansion in its common political usage, even in the last 20 years, um, how it could have been turned into what it is today. Because once you end up all this subjectivity stuff into it and you also, what I see happening is the other criterion get dropped off over time too. So if you have that seven point criterion with the three points that it can be done, um, withholding information from the victim actually often isn't the case in a lot of the ways it's used now. Mm -hmm. Counting the information to fit the viewer's perspective. Well, you can, if you just single in on that alone, any disagreeing opinion can be seen as gaslighting. If you drop the rest of the criteria. Yeah which I think is the way we see it abused now. One of the funny things that a friend of mine pointed out, uh, um, a, a, tra- uh, a transgender friend of mine pointed out, actually, the way people use gaslighting now is actually a form of gaslighting. Uh, yeah, this is, <laughs> I, I, I think I tweeted, I meant that, but that's much more clear than what I said. I think most gaslighters are self-immolated. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think that, yeah, that's, that's uh, exactly what I mean. Go ahead. What do they mean? So, like, so what they're trying to do with the use of gaslighting is convince someone that they're not arguing me, but actually trying to deny a a pre-existing perspective when the argument's not over facts but interpretation. That's another thing to remember here: is you have to actually be messing with someone's factual reality. You aren't just saying their opinions are invalid. You are saying that how they arrived at their opinions are invalid because they're crazy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, you're causing someone to doubt their own sanity, right? That's sort of the the core definition. I mean, that's how it was used in the movie, right? Uh, and right. that's how you now, then that's how you assert a, control over someone. There's a sub level when um that came about in the in the 90s. I believe the paper, the first paper talks about this in 1997s by Robertson Andrews who talks about microaggressions and I'm not going to get into that today, but we will probably have to get to it in another episode we're on in this series. Um, doing gaslighting African Americans collectively about their experience and make them doubt the the legitimacy of their perceived oppression. Yeah. Again, one of those things where it totally makes sense um, how it's used, but it is expanding the context out from instead of an individual to a social group. Yeah. But you could see how when you combine all these other factors, this work could be easily abused. I get. I um, mean, to me, it's like using something as a metaphor. And then treating the metaphor as if it's real. like I, 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 So let's talk about that <laughs> in our next thing, because I think you're exactly right. And let's talk about privilege. Okay. <laughs> you want to do right now, you mean? Oh, yeah. Okay. And then, and then we'll do a right wing word. Okay. Real, um, real quickly, though, um, I did while we were talking, I got another message and this was a private message. So I assume the person doesn't want me to read their name. So I won't. Um, but uh, and he, he asked about the term mansplaining. And I think you can extrapolate that to all sorts of splaining uh, that, that we get used out there. I don't know that we'll talk about that today since we didn't prep it, but we will put it on the list for a super uh, future episode of this series. Yeah, sure. Let's do mansplaining in the future. Mansplaining is another one of those terms is actually very recent. Um, and, uh, 
I'll go into this more in another episode, but it's related to uh, New York Times writer Rebecca Solnit. Um, and we'll leave it at that. Um, so. Uh, privilege. Let's talk about privilege. Yeah. Privilege is, to use another oft-abused term, problematic. Um, <laughs> that's such a that's such a grad school word, but yes, you're right. Go ahead. Um, just took um, me back. And one that you... actually meant something very different than it means now, when it was originally used in grad school, it relates back to the Marxist theorist uh, Althusser, who I don't really like. But anyway, um, so privilege has a, a part of the problem with privilege is, in one sense, it has an incredibly long history as a word social privilege um comes from canon law believe it or not i mean so we're going back to the foundations of christian legal legality right where certain groups have the quote privilege of certain kinds of procedures because of their status usually clergy and then it gets expanded to estates so privilege according in the legal definition is a permission granted by law or by other norms stated or unstated. Okay. Now social privilege, however, as, as what most people throw privilege around, um, has a history that is complicated. Generally people say that the idea of social privilege dates back to 1903 with W.E.B. Du Bois. Okay. And what, but he doesn't call it that. He calls it the wages of whiteness. Yes. All right. Oh, and by the way, um, while we're on this real quickly, um, before you get into this, there's a really great episode of The Dig that I just listened to, um, which is a, a Jacobin radio podcast um, in which uh, Daniel Denver, I think, is the host of that, interviews Assad Hader about these issues. And he has a new book out um, that it, that was a really fascinating conversation. So if you want more on this particular word, I would, after you're done listening to us, go listen to that episode of The Dig. But go ahead. Because he mentioned that as well, the wages of whiteness. So, in 1935, Du Bois talks about the wages of whiteness. Now, Du Bois Bois includes courtesy and deference, unadmitted, uh, unimpeded administrative public functions, lenient treatment in court, and access to the best schools. Um, These are social capital... Um, to use Baduan language, um, for those of you who don't know, Pierre Badu is a French sociologist, that are ascribed to white people as signers, as signals of belonging to the type that is in charge, and also signers of assumed wealth, even if they don't have it. Mm-hmm. Now, in this is pretty much uncontroversial, even in conservative circles, that that was a real thing. Okay, Nobody really disagrees with that. In 1988, pedagogist and and education professor, feminist and anti-racist activist Peggy McIntosh writes an an essay called White Privilege and Male Privilege of a Functional Account of Coming to See the Correspondence in the Work in Women's Studies. And she lists a whole bunch of stuff that she says is a result of systemic racism and social conditioning where she has privileges that – she does not think black people do now there have been criticisms of this even at the time that she put some things on that list that were not true for all white people yeah i'm not going to go into that because she doesn't really recognize class as an issue um 
But this is a metaphor that she is making to talk about two separate issues at one time. And this is where this is where things get complicated. So while Du Bois is talking about the wages of whiteness, he means basically social capital issues and legal pejoratives and cultural norms that protect white people above and beyond um, both individual bigotry and systemic systemic um, problems. Now, structural and systemic racism is not the same thing as individual bigotry. Right. And also, it's not the same thing as even cultural capital bigotry so so for example redlining and devaluing um properties and the fact that those properties remain devalued even after legal redlining has ended is a form of systemic racism because it doesn't require any individual to be racist after its instantiation it will continue operating even with good faith efforts who people who believe they're operating fairly operate it okay now, Macintosh wants to explain this to a bunch of educators so they get their difference in perspective from their black students and other people in women's studies. So she's trying to make a point kind of related to intersectionalism and a bunch of other things. I um, mean, she's trying to get her students to see this. So she comes up with the metaphor of privilege. Privilege is, you know, formally granted by norms or legal standards that you have. And some of those privileges are privileges of, of um, cultural capital. Some of those privileges are privileges of access to wealth because of structural differences. And when I say structural differences, a lot of conservatives go, oh, that's you're not talking about anything. No. When I say a structural difference in wealth, um, one of the reasons why white people have it a lot easier is not income-based. Like A lot of the income is, for, in some senses, is fairly, fairly equal. It is wealth-based. And one of the reasons why it's wealth-based is because um, once redlining was introduced as a practice uh, – um, black communities were often rent farmed, even in you know long-standing non-slavery cities. So even in places that didn't have like Jim Crow laws, they were they were they were shoved off in the small parts of the cities, and like Chicago and New York, and then they were rent farmed to death. And then those areas also went into dereliction. Mm -hmm. Redlining was continually practiced and encouraged up to and through the Kennedy administration. Yeah, and just. Uh but definitionally, redlining is the practice of not giving house loans, basically, to people who to black people, um, essentially. Right. Yeah. Which means in that certain, their in certain areas, yeah, right, comes from rent. They have to rent, or they have informally inherited their homes and have no proof of it. Yeah. Those areas, even when people did start to buy them, were thus devalued in wealth. You go like you, you go into a, a black neighborhood in my town of Macon, Georgia, and like the housing prices are sometimes fifty percent lower, to seventy percent lower than the rest of our income by majority black city like Detroit. Mm -hmm. So even when you do get into the ownership society, your ownership because of associations with the property values are actually dropping. So you do not accumulate wealth in the same way in white neighborhoods do. Mm -hmm. That is structural. Mm -hmm. All right. The funny thing about that is yes, bigots set it up, but if bigots stop it and people just maintain the system, even trying to be fair, it will remain. Right. There's no easy way to fix it either. All right. Um, within our current legal system, it's not like differences in education where you can kind of try it with affirmative action etc. and so forth, as controversial as those are. Um, so that's 
But there's also these social capital issues where, like, yeah, we value – we associate white speech with educated speech, et cetera, and so forth. So those two issues together to try to make – because they're both racial issues, trying to make them clearer, she comes up with the metaphor of the backpack and the privileges in my backpack that yeah. I don't know I have. Now, that is a way of – Making uh, explaining a very complicated notion, uh, to actually two very complicated notions about the way racial inequality and racial differences have had have worked in the United States in a very simple, understandable way. Okay. So where do things get mecked up? Well, in the '90s, there is a movement, and this has actually been dropped, but it's still kind of in in the way we talk about privilege. In the '90s, there is a movement to define racism as power plus privilege. Okay. Part of this is it meant that rate that that like individual racial bigotry by black people against other groups, white people, Jews, et cetera, could not be called racism. Yeah. Um, the other part of it was an attempt to make a definition that's really easily channelable. Here's the problem. You were defining racism with a metaphor to explain two elements of racism. Okay. Which makes it entirely circular. Yeah. All right. So I'm actually one of those people. There's a lot of leftists who like you don't talk about privilege, you know, and I've actually said, look, you actually need to talk about white and black power. Um, it's more clarifying. But the other issue is I think when Macintosh, if you go through that invisible knapsack essay, yeah, there are a few problems with it on specific items you may put in there that don't universally apply to white people. But it's, it's pretty true. OK, um, you then use that as the explanation for racism. And you're not actually saying anything because you're using this idea that racial norms gave you norms to define the thing that gave you the norms to begin. So it's complete. It's it's a completely unhelpful accusation. Furthermore, as people realize, is there are other forms of privileges, and these privileges cancel each other out. And as we've recently studied, um. There's a Vox – this is where privilege has really come to bite people in the butt, all right? There's a Vox study on the way white people respond to mentions of privilege, and they say, look, if you if you hit people on the way that they are alike with black people, they tend to respond sympathetically. But if you accuse them of privilege, even when it's true, it actually tends to generate a positive notion of right – of whiteness, okay. meaning – then not only do they deny privilege now where they did not think of themselves as white, now they do think of themselves as white and they don't they don't think they have anything to feel guilty about. Yeah. That's what the Vox study showed. So psychologically speaking, this way of talking about it, at least not only do you have the circularity problem, but it actually does the opposite of what it's intended to do in cases of people who are not educated and who are poor who do not have other forms of identity to hang on to they found that interestingly enough people who are not strongly invested into a racial identity and who are fairly well off and have other things to hang on to don't do this yeah so college students for example don't tend to grasp on to but the the problem with that study and i will say the problem with that study is like most studies it has the weird problem it's educated people they're studying yeah so like these people go through college they didn't go out and do like street surveys so we don't really know how uneducated working class people respond to this if they do at all. Yeah. Like if it's even on their radar. Yeah. Um, well, I'm just, uh, this is a perfectly anecdotal um, story though. I, from my own experience teaching in a almost entirely white 
um, working class, you know, that whole, that Trump voter um, area where I live and, and teach, uh, it is really difficult to have these conversations with students. I mean, they, they don't react well for exactly the reasons that you're, you're talking about. They don't see themselves having this backpack of privilege because they're three generations of unemployed coal miners, right? And so, yeah, like they're, it's difficult to ask them to, uh, to grapple with privileges that they have. And so phrasing so- it in this way is destructive. I have been asked to teach this essay in schools, and what I do is um, – I ha- and I've been told this is problematic, but whatever. Um, I will have students say, look, what privileges – pick an identity that you have about yourself. Um, what privileges do you have from that identity that you can't control, and what privileges that you don't have from that identity – that you can't, and I'd be amazed. Very few people pick whiteness. Actually, a lot of the I Indian mean, a lot of people pick Christian or Mormon, or um, or they'll pick like Italian American or um, German American or whatever. I mean, and, I, and also I teach lots of Latinx Latino students, so like there's a lot of that too. And um, that was a way of getting people to buy into what Macintosh says. And I've actually had conservative students go, Oh, I get your point about this now. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, it's not, it's not look evil whitey. Right. We're actively (laughs) oppressing us. Right. Um, it is, there's a history of stuff you have to deal with. You don't have control of it either being aware. Now here's the other problem with it from my perspective. When they were like, check your privilege or be aware of your privilege, guess what? It doesn't change anything. Right. Like this is where I'm more where I've become more concerned. Let's just say I know about my privilege, and I do. Like, look, I'm a white skinned dude. I have black family. Like, and I have Korean family and like bloodline black family and, and like married into Korean family. I know that my life is different than theirs because I am pale. Mm-hmm. Because I like completely pass. Because I am effectively white, even though by some weird standards of Georgia law or whatever in the 70s, I would have been considered colored for some weird reason. <laughs> um, but yeah, I get it. I also get that like it's provisional because sometimes my Jewish ancestry becomes an issue sometimes. Um, you know, but I get it. And, and, and I understand that. Right. And I think it's a completely valid thing to be to be aware of. So when people talk about privilege as a metaphor for understanding cultural capital related to race and, stru- and structural uh, inequality related to race, I think it's legitimate. Yeah. Um, when you talk about it as a way to explain all racism, it doesn't make sense. Right. And if you use it as a rhetorical tactic to shut people down, it actually creates a positive white identity. And you don't want to do that. Right. It was one of these things where um, I remember in the in the early aughts and 90s and late 90s when I was in school, people talked about, well, white people had the privilege to never think about the fact they're white. And I was like, yeah. That's actually probably a good thing because they also expand the category constantly. It does lead to this Afro pessimist. Well, everybody can be everybody can be made white, but black people, um, and there's a legitimacy to that. But um, it does lead you to to realize that that notion is not static. Even now, I mean, like Asians, the, the whiteness of Asians and the whiteness of of certain of certain Asian groups, not I was actually shouldn't say broad spectrum here, and the whiteness of pale skin Latinos, they can be incorporated in that identity. And there's been, there's been talks about it. All right. Um, George Zimmerman's a perfect example of this. Sure. You know, um, um, 
the issue that you're going to have, though, is when you throw privilege at certain people, their defensive reactions, um, they don't become aware of privilege. They actually instantiate a positive identity of whiteness against you. Right. Um, that's and that's a mechanism of symbolic kinship response. And I could get into my, my anthropological knowledge here, but it's something that's completely predictable from anthropological and sociological models that means that this discussion will not go politically the way you think it is. Now, I don't want to sound like I'm victim blaming and say that privilege talk is why we have like Nazis again. I actually don't think that. Yeah. Um, but to say that it's not related is, it actually, we have hard evidence that it is. There's several studies that conclude that if you don't have a whole lot else to hold on to other than your racial identity and someone starts accusing you of privilege, you reinforce the racial identity as a positive notion. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely part of the stew, right? And, and so you, you can't just dis- discount that. that um, you can't. I, it's not causal. You can't say that because some college professor told them about privilege, they became an alt-right person, right? You know, but uh, but it's definitely part of the the the, the mix that that. Them, yeah. yeah, and I think it's also like it's it's how you talk about privilege. All right, it's not that you talk about privilege; it's how you talk about privilege. Um. So, you know. This is opposed to meritocracy. Now, I'm going to go ahead and put my cards on the phone. Meritocracy is a horse poo notion. Okay. And your Christian listeners should know that. And they appreciate you saying the word poo, um, by the way. Yeah. Um, so, um, but go ahead. It's, it's, a, it's a horse poo notion. Um, <laughs> there has never been a, meritric, a meritocratic society in life. Like, look, we look at relatively meritocratic institutions like um, you work in academia. Yeah. Right? It's relatively meritocratic. It's credentialed. It's it's used to be ruled mostly by the people who do it, you know, you achieve by what you do. But you know and I both know that academia has unstated politics that are absolutely not meritocratic at all and there's no way to make them. No, no, absolutely. And and believe me, when we talk about privilege, this is related. Like I have no idea why I have a job and other people don't, right? Uh, like I have no I mean, I'm sure that there's some sort of um uh I mean, especially in English, there's so such a, a, a dearth of academic jobs, full-time jobs out there. And I have no idea why I landed one and other people haven't. Right. And so there's clearly something in that backpack that's helped me and I don't know what, what it is, but yeah. And it's beyond my own merit, believe me. So I mean, I think privilege as a way of understanding gender and racial equalities as a metaphor for much more complicated, harder to explain things is totally legitimate. And I don't want to tell people not to use it, but as a rhetorical tactic, it's it doesn't work. Right. And as an explanation for racism itself, it's circular. It's completely circular. Yeah. And there's one more criticism I want to bring into the concept um, that's been pointed out by um, Lawrence Bloom. There are privileges amongst these mon- – like when you talk about like people of color or even like different kinds of black people, there are privileges amongst these individuals that the definition of power plus privilege and a lot of those other things cannot address – because they're micro definitions and like when we think of like black people we're thinking about this unified whole that doesn't actually exist in reality yeah um so like um black immigrants from the caribbean and black immigrants from africa and black immigrants for certain parts of africa are all treated very differently whether you're muslim or christian um 
uh, different kinds of Asian groups are treated dramatically differently depending on uh, their background. I mean, look at Vietnamese versus Japanese versus Koreans versus Southeast Asian doctors. Yeah. Those are all treated very differently sure. in our social conceptions. And one of the hardest things I ever had, I was teaching a class on American culture and I had a Korean girl who came to me utterly confused and she was like, I always thought from what I read about from American stuff that Asians were colored people. Why do African American people dislike me? Hmm. And I'm like, one, they probably don't. But two, like there's this whole dynamic of privilege about race that she, and it was so micro nuanced and so not of her own culture that like, I, t- I, I spoke to her for two hours and I was like, you still don't really understand this. Do you Yeah. like model minorities and this history of uh, wealth accumulation and who's allowed in when and, and you know the extreme discriminations against Asians in one part of the United of of U.S. history, and it's total reversal at a later date, and like, yeah. and assumptions about who and how and in, in intercommunity relationships, and like, this was totally alien to her, and um, that's when I started really thinking about trying to explain this in a different way because it it it, it didn't help some an outsider understand it either, right? Um. Weirdly, because of the dominance of U.S. academia and the dominance of U.S. internet, these words that were that were not used in other countries have been picked up, and so this gets even more convoluted now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. Well, so so privilege has a long and storied history, and I don't want to complete like there's a, there are a group of Marxists who think the that this is a completely illegitimate form of study. There's this anti SJW right. Marxist core. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say this. I've been identified with them. I don't see myself as one of them. And one of the things that I like to bring up about them is a lot of those guys, and they're mostly men, although not all, a lot of those people become right-wingers. Mm. Like um, The horseshoe effect? <laughs> well. I, I really don't think that's true, but, uh, but I just. I, mean, uh, yeah. I, I, I was describing someone that I think there's a truth to the horseshoe effect sociolo- sociologically, but absolutely no truth to it ideologically, meaning like the ideologies don't actually overlap. Right. Um, but like the kinds of people who are attracted to fringe ideologies come from similar backgrounds and there is an overlap yeah. between um, the kinds of people attracted to the alt-right or well, not. Yeah, the alt right into like like the DSA left. There is sure. Um, so speaking of that, let's talk. You pick one of our right wing terms on our list, and we have gotten through like four of eight terms, but we're probably going to need to end it because we've been on yeah. this thing for like yeah. two hours. Let's uh, yeah, we were only just over an hour. Let's do one more, and let's do the one that I think will be quicker. Um, and this is one that I hear right wing folks um throw out all the time is just some sort of pejorative slur as if it means something. Um, I think cultural Marxism is going to be too big of one to end on the show. So let's oh, maybe no, save yeah, that that's one. A whole um, so one. yeah, we'll, we'll get to that one eventually. I'm I was think- going to go ahead and warn you when we do cultural appropriation and cultural Marxism, those two terms by themselves will be an entire show. Yeah. That, that's a very likely <laughs> scenario, right? Um, millennial. Like that seems to be a slur for basically these young kids today, right? Um, and so for me, it's stupid because millennials are people now in their 30s and 40s, right? And so not 40s, uh, not, not quite no 40s, right? 40, yeah, but... maybe 35. Okay, and so um, no, I mean you could be 38. 
Yeah. And so you've got like basically the teacher in a classroom is is the millennial in the classroom. And so, first of all, it just doesn't make any sense uh, just factually. It doesn't mean it doesn't actually refer to what you think it refers to. But also, I think there's just a problem with talking about generations in general because of a lot of this like local distinction that makes it hard to put everybody in the same bucket just based on when they were born. Right. And so, um, but I want to, obviously this is for you to talk about what you think. So let's, let's go All with right, millennial. So I'm going to talk about millennial in the history of this generational distinctions. The, the generational distinctions come with boomers and boomers got redefined over and over again. My mother, for example, in the first research on boomers was the end of it. Now she's in the middle of it. Um, now, part of that is because, like, a baby boom, which is a very clear thing that happens after war, did actually go on for longer than they thought it did. Millennial is another generation that's a product of a baby boom. Yeah. You can't call them boomers because we've already taken that. <laughs> um, now, I've heard a lot of stupid things said about millennials in this, uh, that even aren't true. For example, I've heard them said the first generation that doesn't stand as, do as well as their parents. No, not true. That was true for Gen X, too. Right? In fact... Pretty much every generation since the 70s has not done as well as its parents. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about the demographic cohort of millennial. Because when, when that word was first used, guess who wasn't part of it? Moi. Okay. <laughs> now, when that word is used, guess who's part of it? Moi. Okay. This pisses me off. <laughs> Um, you don't want to be a millennial or what? Yeah, okay. Well, the, one of the things is I don't identify strongly with either generation ab- above and below me. And there are reasons why that have nothing to do with like my personal preference. Um, I grew up in the eighties. I remember the cold war. My first memories of any political consequence are Tiananmen square and the end of the Berlin wall. Sure. I grew up before cell phones. I, I started teaching as an adult before smartphones. I remember the age when the internet was not, when the World Wide Web was not a thing. Right. I, you know, like, all. if you talk to someone in there who's 21 or even 28, they don't remember any of that. Right. Um, there are some age cohort trends that I do think are broadly speaking true. Millennials have faith in institutions because they don't remember all the institutional scandals pre the eighties. Mm-hmm. And they grew up in the shadow of nine 11 primarily, but you also got to remember the way millennials have been redefined, um, led them to be, um, to lead to people like me who were adults when nine 11 happened as being considered in the same generation of people who were born the year before. Yeah. Um, millennials originally referred to, were referred to as echo boomers or gen Y. Okay. It was something I even picked this term up myself. I, I had a zine in the nineties when I was paper zines and we called ourselves gen Y and it was gen Y as in like, gen, like, why are we doing this? Okay. Like, it was an affectation of uh, cynicism that you don't see. Um, the generations, the generational de- de- definition was originally coined by Strauss and Howe. They coined the term in 1987 to refer to children born after 1992. Their original studies were done in the late 90s and early 2000s, solely on college students, almost completely white. Um, they they wrote. A book called um, Generations of History of America's Future in 1991 where this comes up and they don't know anything about millennials because they're like eight. Right. And then they write Millennials Rising the Next Generation. Um, In 1993, 
an advertising agency starts saying, look, if they're 11 or older, um, start advertising to them as a separate generation. Mm-hmm. At first, they called them Gen Y, and they started calling millennials because they were going to be adults at the turn of the millennium. Now, somewhere around 19, uh, uh, 2006, um, this book called Generation Me comes out. Um, it has a different studies. It talks about um, Americans being confident, assertive, entitled, and miserable. All right, and mostly about the about the very young children of the middle to end cohort of the baby boomers. Okay, right, all right. Um, they avoided drafts. Um, the oldest of them grew up in a time of relative peace, where there weren't a lot of wars, or at least not a lot of active, obvious wars. Um, now. But this generation me redefines this generation going back to either 1978 or 19, uh, 1980. So I, I bring this up as a person who is literally – I call myself now the oldest millennial because <laughs> I may be. Um, but only because of redefinition. Dude, if you I, write I, a novel, that's the that should be the title of it, the oldest millennial. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, because – and I say this because – some definitions actually now put it all the way back to 1978. It got redefined. Now there's also this micro generational cohort called the Zennials, which is which these are clearly me. They're people born between 1976 and 1984. Okay. Um, and they basically were they their age of adulthood is the 90s. They they are totally early adopters of technology, but they didn't grow up with it. They remember the Cold War. They remember a lot of the crises before 9/11. They remember the world before 9/11 in general. Um, okay. So we already see the problems and you have a, you have a shifting definition. Now, here's the funny thing. One, it, if you're born before the year 2000, you're, you're probably a millennial. If, if, if you're not over 38. Yeah. If you are born, if you are born after the year 2000, guess what? You're not a millennial. Yeah. You're what we haven't named it yet. And they're going to call it's gone to Z because we are so creative about these things. Well, it's what they tried Y first. Right. And so, yeah, um, yeah X, X stuck. I'm an Xer. I'm right in the middle of X. Right. And so, yeah. Um, so Nielsen research now defines millennial as, um, as born from 1977 to sometimes they ended at 1996. Sometimes a lot of things now ended at 2000. Um, you know, um, the Strauss and Howe originally defined it as 82 to 2004. Um, uh, Edward Collison, another sociologist, defines it from 83 to 2001. Um, so even amongst the people who do this, guess what? No one agrees on the precise delineation of the generation, except that now if you're under 20, you're not a millennial. Right. Um. Now, honestly, Gen X was used the same way. If you remember, like, Gen, they would call it, like, my, I got called a Gen Xer in high school. We weren't, mm-hmm. right? Um, um, well, and what's interesting, okay, is uh, there's been all kinds of surveys on uh, millennials on the politics. And guess what? Depending on the year you do it, what they say millennial politics are varies dramatically. 
Mm-hmm. So in 2006, um, there's a follow-up to the Howe study. And guess what? Millennials were said to be the most conservative generation because they trusted institutions. And at the time, they were largely they were largely Republican. Um, the Iraq war shifted all that. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why uh, uh, they were also in the in the in the mid aughts. They also tended to be libertarian more than other people and very liberal in social views. They the, the only two consistent traits amongst people under 35 politically that have handled through the entire time period is they tend to be more open on same-sex marriage, even if they're religious, and they tend to be um, for the legalization or at least a decriminalization of most recreational drugs. Okay. That's it. Um, everything else shifts with the social uh, with the social community at the time. And the same is true with boomers and a lot of other generations too. Like, like people forget, oh, boomers gave us 1968. They also gave us Ronald Reagan. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so like come on people yeah um like so and it's funny because you hear about all oh, political correctness as being a thing of, of millennials no it's not people have been talking about political correctness since the 70s um uh millennial here's the key traits about millennials one they're less likely to be married than prior generations they're also less likely to divorce uh two there are more people of color in them uh, than before three there are more people who identify as some kind of alternative sexuality although still you're only in the like five to five to maybe 15 percent range depending on how you define it which is consistent with the kinsey scale research from the 60s um three they are broker than people of the generational cohorts beneath them but not as significant the actual biggest drop is between boomers and gen x and millennials are just slightly worse off than Gen Xers because yeah. most of them turned of age in an economic downturn. Yeah. Um, three, uh, those are, those are what we know. And also they are in educa- they're educated. They are highly educated, but have lower skilled work because of the trends of education at the time. And, um, because you know, we were all taught that education, and this is actually very different. The, there are some things where this generational stuff is true. For example, my students do not really believe that education wants going to get them out of their situation. They don't believe anything's going to get them out of their situation. They don't have a lot of hope. Yeah. The, they're not millennials, by the way, they're whatever the next generation is going to be called right now. We're calling them Z. Right. Um, we were taught the older millennials were taught. If we go to school, we'll get good jobs. We all did it. Most, a lot of us had working class parents. A lot of us were like first generation educated people. And statistically speaking, we are still doing better than you would expect if we got an education because you're still only dealing with 40% of the population. But, but you got to remember 40% of the population having a degree is entirely new. Yeah. Um, even in the 90s, when I was going to school, the I think the graduation, the average graduation rate was like what 50 percent of people enter, and only like 25 percent of people enter college. That's mm. completely different now. I think that 50 percent rate's the same, but I think it's more like 55 percent enter college. So that's where all this millennial stuff goes from. Are millennials killing everything off? They don't have money. Yeah, uh, and they're just beginning to get money. So like, um, like amongst millennials. Most of us are buying our first home and entering like the property middle class in our mid to late thirties. Right. We're also having our first child in our mid to late thirties. Right. Um, so our, you know, our, our, you know, there is a major generational difference, but the, it has to do with economics, frankly. Um, we're also, there is a truth that millennials are far less. This is another generational truism. We're not very religious. 
Um, but I'm going to be honest with you. Most boomers and Gen Xers aren't very religious anymore. So I don't know if that's actually uh, a sincere trend difference and it's, if it's going to maintain for a long period of time or if it's uh, an age cohort thing or it, like, and people were age into religion or age out of it or if there's just a general secularization of society. Well, yeah, that's where um, I was going to go actually. And you've been, you've been Facebooking yeah, about I, secularization here I, recently. So. I was, I was believer in secularization theory before it was cool back when it was like in the, in the aughts when everyone's like, no, we're not secularizing. And I'm like, yes, we are. Yeah. And, um, and I would say like, look, and I would say this to new atheists who are like, we got to fight these fundamentalists. I'm like, they're not, they have the same values you do. Yeah. Like, and they're like, see, no, we have this human. I'm like, no, it's not, it's not like, oh, we're all evolutionary to have designed to have these values or some stupid thing. I've been to places that don't trust me. Yeah. Um, it's more that, um, the culture is the common culture is a common culture. And if it's not religious, even if it says it is, but it isn't really, yeah. you know, you and I talk about this and the God thinks like me thing. That's a big thing with millennials. Like if you meet religion, millennial religious people, if you actually want to figure out their beliefs, you don't ask them their religion. You ask them their politics. Yeah, I agree with this. Yes. Um, this is a very good, uh, possibly another topic here, a spinoff from this show. Um, secularization in the church but um um what but the topic the or the aspect of this this word particularly that drives me crazy is that it's used like oh look at these kids eating tide pods these millennials right and so a they're not millennials as you just discussed right but b like what is it about that term that makes it so it's like ready made to be a slur in a way that Gen X necessarily wasn't right. You know, um, we talk about Gen X as being cynical and, and punky or whatnot. Right? I was about to say, I do remember Gen X being a slur. The thing I think the difference is Gen X, Gen X did what a lot of, a lot of groups have done. I mean, if you look at even the term Christian, a Christian was originally a slur, right? That's true. Yeah. And I mean, they, like it they, was, a, it was, you know, the the Christ groups or the Jesus groups. They didn't call themselves Christians until what the second century or something. Like yeah. it's 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 because it starts off as a like Christioi, like those those weirdos over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so and, you know, so Gen yeah. X like owned it, kind of as Gen a, X as a, owned yeah. it. Millennials have never have never never have. Partly, I think, because there is a bigger micro generation gap. Hmm. Uh, because of a technology acceleration within yeah. the millennials than without it. Cause I, I mean, I complain about kids these days and I realized the other day and I used to say like all oh, these weird millennials and I'm like, wait, I'm one of them, <laughs> but you know better. Uh, right. And so there's something about that term that just is so attractive to use as the Andy Rooney kids these days sort of stance, right? Like you're just going to throw that term out there to describe every young person that you think is just like hopeless. And, and I, and I don't, I, it's, curious to me as to why well, that I term is part of that is the fact that being being young now doesn't have the same connotation of responsibility yeah um i mean when you look at boomers they are let's look at lost generationers and gen uh great i hate the term greatest generation but i'm going to use it because there's not another one um <laughs> what what were they doing at 19 they had a kid yeah they weren't going to college they were fighting in a war that most of them had severe PTSD. Like they were built, they were literally, but they were building America quite literally. Right. Um, that's not going to happen anymore. Right. 
millennials are a generation that's defining things or technology that happens to them, not even technology they've really invented, with the exception of social network, uh, social media, which has changed a lot of things, but uh, apparently not for the better. I mean, even millennials don't like social media anymore, right. even though they're all on it and addicted to it. Its popularity ratings have plummeted. Right. Um, and look, you know, I think of have I think of uh, Facebook like I think of opiates. Right? <laughs> yeah. Except I don't do opiates. I do do Facebook. Um, you do do so Facebook. That's true. I do do Facebook. <laughs> do do is appropriate. Um, so you know, that's where I I I think it I think it's because we know inherently that the millennial. I think it is because millennials know that we don't. We're not going to have the social status. We and other generations know it too. Yeah, boomers like to complain. I mean, like, look. The only honest boomer complaints about millennials is when they actually like like will say we did this to you because like who raised us, dude? Right. Like right, right. You're complaining about us being entitled, and you you talk about entitlement as parenting. That's a generational cohort that did that. That's you, buddy. Right. Um. And also, you want to talk about being entitled? Let's talk about baby boomers for a second. No. Um. <laughs> I'll get on my boomer hatred rants. It's really just me being mad at my mother. Um. <laughs> See my, see, my mom, I suppose, is a boomer, but I just can't even picture my parents as baby boomers just because I don't feel like they fit in any of those cultural stereotypes because they're a bunch of like migrant hillbillies from West Virginia to Cleveland, you know, in, in the 60s. Right. Yeah. And so I feel like all the things you know about boomers don't apply to my parents. And I feel like the millennials, it's even it's an exponential case of that. It, all the stereotypes, like you said, there's so many subdivisions and there's such a, a vast jump in technology from one year to the next that I don't even know that the term that we can even use generations to describe large groups of people anymore um, with the speed that things are moving. Well, I mean, when you think I I will tell you how I, I see this. I am, even though I'm a quote millennial, I am approaching 40, even though I don't look at it, luckily me, (laughs) um, as I've been told a lot recently. Um, But whatever. Um, My point about that though, is I started teaching, high school kids and, co- and young college kids. I started teaching college kids in 2005 when I was barely, when I was only three or four years older than them. And I started teaching high school kids in 2007. I have seen the rise of both social media and smartphones as an adult. Right. right. If that's a generational cohort defining f- feature, it's one that I was already 24 when they all started. Right. And I was almost 30 when smart te- when like smartphones and tablets took off. Right. Now, it has fundamentally altered education and all that, but that would only affect five years worth of millennials, but it's going to totally affect the next generation. And, and so, like, yeah, I, I, I think part of the, her- the haziness is one. I, weirdly, Jet X, which dominated the conversation for years, has just completely fallen off the wayside. Like... The last time I heard Gen X mentioned as a as any kind of substantive identity was talking about how Obama was the first Gen X president yeah. and also the last Gen X president. Apparently. Yeah, I think you're probably um, right about that. Well, it's a very small generation, be, so yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, it might be the only Gen X president. <laughs> like, yeah. like there's only like what two lost generation presidents or something. So it's going to be one of those generations. But um, I just think that the generational theories. Uh, only explain can explain certain traits i mean there are certain traits that bother me i'll give you an example um people under 35 and this is specifically under 35 so it wouldn't even include all millennials depending on how you define it 
do not have the same commitment to free speech that everybody above it does, regardless of the political association. Yeah. Um, and I think that has to do with faith in institutions mm. and, and also being raised in a, in a time of heightened fear, but in a time of heightened fear that let's be frank was stupid. Yeah. Um, to, to bring it back to, it's, it's hard to remember like how crazy the war on terror was, but also how like in perspective nuts it was because I do, I am old enough to remember in the late eighties when we thought an existential threat was not like some terrorists, like maybe bringing a dirty bomb into something and like ruining half a city. We thought the whole world was going to blow up. Right. <laughs> like I remember this. I remember like nuclear prep drills when even as babies, cause we, we did this in Georgia for longer than a lot of the rest of the country. Yeah. We, we had it. We were like, we're going to hide from a nuclear bomb under our desk. Yeah. And even as a kindergartner, I was like, that's stupid. Yeah. We're all dead. Yeah. Like, well, and if you, so I'm, and I'm an Xer, so I had more of that than you. And add to it the evangelical belief that God was going to come back every five minutes, right? You know, um, like, which we have a show on that coming up about this pamphlet about uh, predicting Jesus would return in 1988. So uh, I'll put that up on the Facebook page soon. But yeah, so the, yeah, there was this kind of, I mean, just sort of dread of the future was just sort of instilled into my DNA. Right, and me too, and I don't – you don't get that with millennials um, in general. Um, oh, well, you do now, but it's a different – it's not – you know, um, I wrote a whole book. I remember a whole book, book of poetry about this exact topic, um, <laughs> about being in the generation that kind of like grew out of a lot of those fears. I mean the other thing is like, you know, we grew out of the AIDS scare. We grew out of a bunch of things. And so like that, there are some things that I think are consistent to the generation, but they're not defining, and they're definitely not – what you hear a lot about. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the biggest ones is we were in school for a lot longer Mm -hmm. and we got a lot less for it for a lot more cost. Right. And, um, we are more, we are more ethnically diverse than prior generations. Um, because Europeans in general quit having kids that they got wealthy. Right. But regardless of where they are on the planet. And, I, you know, that's true for other groups, too. Apparently, once you have money, you don't have children. Um, <laughs> in our, unless you have a lot of money and then you have a bunch of children. Um, but socially speaking. So that those things are, are generally true. But in general, I don't even know what to make of it politically. Because, I, you know, I think like – because a lot of people tell me, you know, when the, when uh, the boomers die, you know, the Republicans are going to go with them. And I'm like, I don't know that that's true. I think the Republican. I think we're already seeing, even though we're seeing like arch boomer, you know, go, the most gauche boomer ever as our president. I think we are actually seeing a major shift in ideology and ideological trends that is going to affect young people for a long time. Yeah. Um, and I don't think we know what this is going to look like. No, it's true. And yeah, the Democrats dependence on demographics for their hope for the future has always struck me as silly because people generally get more conservative when they get older. Um, and if, as you get older, you typically, that's when you'll make more money and you'd be generally become more conservative when that happens. And in honestly from around here, like most of the young people, I mean, they would have voted for Trump too. They've been able to vote, right? It's because that's what their parents do. It's like you can't discount inherited political ideology as well. And so, although here's what I will say about this, um, Danny, is there's a limit to that too. In night in two thousand, um, most of the people that grew up with me were de- were diehard Republicans. 
Um, by age 35, almost none of them are. Yeah. So, um, who knows what they are? I mean, some of them are libertarians, some of them are crazy Marxists like me, some of them are like, you know, loyal Star Wars Democrats. But what we're seeing is, you know, a mass realignment in both parties in general, and it's happening right before our faces, and we don't know what to do about it. It Because the last time we've seen this was right before the Civil War, and those were actually new parties emerging. Right now, we just see hyperpolarization in a in a system that can't handle it and the people are going to bring that on millennials you know whatever yeah. but guess again they, they have, how many millennials are in congress i mean right. like for real maybe two yeah um, true. i mean true. like it's tiny so I, I actually wonder if it uh what we're seeing now in the terms of the political realignment is more like oh like the great society uh causing that uh shift with the southern democrats and um that caused a massive uh, uh realignment ultimately and we're sort of in the middle of another one of those and um who knows who what the parties will look like in 10 years so well i mean i i, I really do part of my dream danny to make some of your more liberal friends um uncomfortable is that the democrats split okay but um like the Whigs did and we have a massive realignment proper but uh if that doesn't happen i would just like the uh the 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 democratic leadership council which um and the dnc to slowly fade into that good night um the rest of the boomers (laughs) um with the rest of the boomers um and uh um but, um, you know, I mean, th- that's the other thing, like the Democrats, the party of youth, but yet like supposedly. Right. Yeah. But yet look at who they represent them. They're by far even even when you talk about someone like Bernie Sanders, um, they are by far boomer gerontocracy. Yeah. Um, and so all these things are somewhat not true in reality. I mean, like none of this really hold, uh, our media narratives don't really hold. And these words really prove that. And look, we have like 20 more words to go. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's, uh, let's wrap this one up. This was great though. A great part one. Um, as I wrote these down, I realized this was going to be probably at least three or four parts, um, uh, in the future, look for a future episode on resistance, emotional labor, snowflakes. Uh, what do we have? Intersectionality, McCarthyism, neo-Marxism cultural Marxism dog whistle uh, that was an, a request we didn't get to today uh, cultural appropriation social justice warrior human biodiversity uh, and a standpoint epistemology you just threw out microaggressions we've got all sorts of things to talk about here in the future so and anybody who listening if you have something you'd like us to add to that list uh, by all means uh, contact the show go to the Facebook page and comment on this thread and yeah. and, and we'll add it to the list. Maybe one day I'll get to talk about Christian movies with you again, Danny. Maybe one day. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll hang on after. We'll, we'll do some scheduling. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> Derek, thanks again. This was a great uh, educational episode for me. And it, uh, I think it educated me a lot about some things that have just sort of subtly been bugging me. And I haven't had the, the terms to describe why. And I think you did a good job in helping me do that. So, uh, yeah. And let me add a, one more term that's going to that's gonna make everybody angry. Let's talk about political theology as the last one. Political theology. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Writing it down right That's now. That's not a common word, but it, it, it it's it's a root. All right. Issues. <laughs> we'll, we'll put it on the list and uh, we'll schedule right. some of these and hopefully get them out fairly soon. Uh, for, thanks for everybody for listening. Uh, as always, I'm Danny Anderson. If you have any uh, comments, you know where to reach us. Go back and listen to the beginning of the show and find out all those sources. Thank you to Derek Varn and uh, have a good day.